I know you've been getting uh, such excellent teaching from Mr. Miller, who is in Texas today. And uh, he, he approaches it probably more as a seminary class, because someday he may even be a professor in a seminary. Uh, I probably approach it more as a Bible teacher, because someday I might be a Bible teacher. Because that's just how I, my mind works. So could be a little bit different today in terms of how um, you've been hearing it and how it's been communicated. But nevertheless, it is the Word of God. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 7 today. And this is one of those chapters that is highly, highly debated. Very controversial. And we'll see why. Um, in a few minutes. <clears throat> um, but before we look at it, why don't you guys help me and tell me what you've learned. We are in chapter 7 of 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. Almost a third of the way through. And we might actually uh, finish it before the millennium begins. Did you guys catch that? Yeah. We might actually finish it before... The millennium begins. You agree with that statement? No. All right, good, 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 good job. Tell me what you've learned so far. Give me some ideas. Yes, Kim. Revelation is not linear. Oh, it's not linear. Okay. It's, it's all uh, going on, you know, then, now, and forward. Excellent. And is, is, there, a, is there a term that we have used to describe these visions that Repeat themselves. Recapitulation. Very good. Tell me what else, what else have you learned in, in uh, these many weeks that Dean's been going through this primarily? Anything else that just stands out in your mind? That uses big words. Use, oh, <laughs> Dean uses big words. Okay. Give me something that has to do with the book itself. Anything else? Um, the the throne room, how it uh, everything that you know the the temple that was on earth was a foreshadowing of what is true in heaven. So the temple on earth and the pictures that we see uh, revealed in the visions, and also going back to the Old Testament and pictures in the Old Testament of in the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple and that Solomon built and so on, those are all foreshadowing of the reality, right? They're not even the reality. I mean, obviously they were real, but the reality is Christ. The reality is what's true right now in heaven. That's right. Good. What else? Anything else? That the seven churches represent the entire church age in the Advental period. Very good. The seven churches represent the entire church age in the Advental period. Advental being between the two comings of Christ, between the first and the second. Yes. Yeah. Bob. Uh, much like the Old Testament, there is a uh, continual series of warnings and judgment and consequences. Excellent. Yes. It's a continual series. Warnings, judgments, and then consequences from disobedience and uh, the result of sin. Yes. What else? This is all good. Good job. What do we call this uh, perspective of eschatology that we are studying? Amillennialism. Um, as opposed to premillennialism and postmillennialism. And would anyone just want to tackle in a quick summary uh, the differences between those three very briefly? <clears throat> what does all millennialism believe in its essence? What's what we've been talking about right now? We are in, this is the millennial reign now. The church age is the, the millennial reign right now. So the thousand years that we read about, we'll see when we get to chapter 20, are not to be understood literally, 
but they are a symbolic figurative picture of something else, a greater truth, which represents the reign of Christ today on the earth, in the heavens, and on the earth now through the church. What does premillennialism believe? Hang on, give it to Dan. There's going to be a millennial reign of Christ that hasn't started yet. And when will that take place? When he comes back for a first, second time. The first, second time? <laughs> when he comes back? Go ahead, you got it. Just say what you mean. So, um, yeah, when he comes back, then that they'll, will they'll start the millennium. So when like Jesus returns, he, yeah. returns. But it's un unclear with premillennialism. It seems like there's almost like he comes back two more times. Well, not really. I know what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Okay, go ahead, Bob. Yeah. As I understand it, the understanding of the difference between premillennialism, you know it, anomalism is basically the exegesis. You know, how do you interpret? And the premillennialist, as Kim was pointing out, have a literal and chronological interpretation of every verse in Revelation, which leads them to the conclusion that they have that Dan was referring to. Exactly. That's good. And so they believe there will be a literal thousand-year reign. What is the big word that is used to describe their, their basic eschatological premise from which they operate? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure if I have that. But don't they believe also in a rapture? Yes, they the believe in a rapture. Yeah, and, and the reason they believe in a rapture is because of that word, Dispensation. dispensationalism, which means? Which means that the way that God is relating to man changes there's like these different it's segmented like there's different dispensations what does the word dispensation time. mean in, in, in a kind of is a, it not the like the way that it's a time period well okay yeah it's a period of time yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a segment of time that is that is uh delineated by a difference from the, another period of time and then we should also probably make a distinction between Dispensational premillennialism, and then there's other forms of premillennialism. Classical premillennialism. Which is don't not necessarily have that. That's right. Those issues. But they do believe in, the, in a literal millennium, millennium thousand-year reign of Christ after yeah. his return. Yes, that's exactly right. And what the dominant theology, eschatology in America today is dispensational premillennialism, which is why we've been taking so long to not teach against it. We're not teaching against anything, but to differentiate between the two. Um, and I would, let me just ask you this question, and this is very subjective, and the answer is not a right or wrong. Why do you think that this is a big deal? Why do you think it's important? Or do, maybe start with, do you think it's important? Obviously, you know I do. Do you think it's important to have some sort of a, a grounded eschatology that you hold to in, in your Christian experience? And if so, why do you think that's important? Anybody want to? Just venture out in their thoughts and that. Use, use the mic. Uh, well, Jesus is uh, reigning now. He's, it's, it's not to come back for a thousand years. He's going to reign for a thousand years, but he's reigning right now. Right. And if, uh, if the uh, premillennialists uh, believe that they're going to be raptured out, then they don't have to participate. They're just going to be gone, and they're not going to, they don't have to worry about uh, doing their uh, duty as a Christian at this time in these times. Yeah. So that's that's a safe play. Yeah. Good. That's good. That's very good. Anybody else? Well, I think it affects how we live. I think the in way we way, believe. Michael? Well. I think that the way we live is based on a lot of what we believe. And so if we believe one way that it's all going to be all right regardless, then we kind of live lackadaisical. If we're living as though we're in the, the uh, millennial period now, the kingdom of God, we should live differently. Good. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's it. Those are all great answers. And, and obviously, and Dean has been hammering this point home, is that if, if uh, as 
dispensational premillennialists believe um, the book of Revelation primarily deals with the nation of Israel, then it has no meaning to the church. Then it has no meaning for us. If only the three chapters, first three chapters of Revelation speak of the church, then in the beginning of chapter 4, the church is raptured out, which is what they believe. Then from chapter 4 to the end, until the return of Christ, there is nothing that has to do anything with us. And so it's like, what's the point? Which makes no sense, does it, in the economy of God, to have that? And then to have the encouragement to read it and to obey it, as is said in it in the beginning and in the end of the book. Blessed are those who read these words and who obey them and anyone who adds to them and takes from them and the danger of that. So there's a lot in this that is important. And ironically, uh, even today, many leaders don't want to land in any area in this because it's so controversial and it's so hard at times to understand. Um, But I think the perspective that we have taken and that we are teaching from is by far the easiest to wrap our minds around and has the most blessing and understanding. Even as I was preparing for today, I got so blessed just again thinking, reading, and studying this. So let's look at chapter 7, and uh, we're going to look at this text. And uh, I think I think to start with, I want to just read it straight through, and we're going to end about 5 minutes to 10, so we'll try to get this done. I'm going to help Dean. I'm going to do a whole chapter today. I'm going to help Dean. So when he gets back, he can jump right in on chapter 8. <clears throat> After this, Revelation 7, 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. What's that? Her, her audio Bible. Oh, her audio Bible was talking? Is it reading for me? <laughs> it was. Thanks, Sue. After this, I, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, and so on. Verse 9, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, we pray uh, that you would teach us today this glorious truth that's revealed in this chapter. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Dean reminded us that chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, if you want to turn back there and look at it quickly, this is the, the sixth seal out of seven. 
And this sixth seal is opened in verse 12. And that was the seal that gives us the picture of the end of the age. It's a picture of the, of the culmination of the age in which we are living at the return of Christ. This sixth seal corresponds, as Dean pointed out here, to the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl. So unlike the seventh in the trumpets and the bowls, which also depict the end of the age, the sixth seal depicts the end of the age. Now what we talked about in, in this, how we've understood this, and this is what Kim pointed out in her answer, which was, was right on, is that we're looking at... Um, recapitulations of visions. So it's not, it's not a linear look chronologically to where we're seeing one vision and then another vision chronologically depicting the end of the days. But these things are happening again and again and again. So if this is the seals right here, and, and this is the sixth seal right here, then what's going to happen at the seventh seal when it's opened, it's going to begin the trumpets. And when the trumpets, the seventh trumpet is sounded, it's going to begin the bowls. Actually, this dot should have been here. And this dot should have been here at the sixth. Because they depict the same things. So these are ongoing, these are visions. Now, interesting, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And after this, I saw four angels. So that's why people think, well, he's talking about now what's going to happen next. No, he's just simply saying, I saw this vision next. This is the next vision I saw. It doesn't mean that this is a chronological order. It just simply means I, then I saw this. That's all it means. And so we have these, these visions that actually this, 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 this is not even a, a right picture because these intersect. These, what happens here is the same as what's happening here. What's, what's happening here, it's just that they are giving a different vantage point, different emphasis, different perspective of the same Events of the same time frame, which we know is the church age. One of the things that I remember uh, from uh, Dean's classes, previous classes, is that all seven seals had to be opened at the same time yes. to un un yes. unroll the scroll. Yes. So they, they all have to start at the same True. place. True. Right. They're, all, they're all open it's at the same time, right. but the picture of what that is given to us is obviously consecutive. The consecutive in, yes, visions. in order that we can understand what they all represent. Gotcha. But, yes. And who's opening the seals? The Lamb. The Lamb is opening the seals. So after this, he says, I saw, and he describes now four angels. Okay, actually, I want to go back, though, to chapter 6 just for a minute because this is a key to understanding chapter 7. So as we look at the end of the age, and as the sixth seal is opened in chapter 6, listen to what is said. Look at verse 12, Revelation 6, 12. He opened the sixth seal, and I looked, and I beheld there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and it describes what's going to happen in the, in the heavens. The sky vanished, verse 14, like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed. I mean, we're talking about cataclysmic events at the coming of Christ. That's why it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. And look, what, look what's going on on the earth. Verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So it's talking about even the greatest, most powerful men on the earth and I, I got to say this, these are probably some of these men, even in our life now time, are the most evil. They hold the power. They have the financial wealth. They manipulate the affairs of men through economics and through decisions that they make unilaterally with no, you know, voice from the people in many countries. And they're hiding themselves. And it says in verse 16, they were calling, even calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and they yelled out, Who can stand? Who can stand? And so Revelation chapter 7 now answers the question of Revelation 6, 17. 
This is who will stand. This same question, by the way, was asked in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. Malachi says this, Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Psalm 1.5 says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, stand, is it a literal standing, or is it representative of a state of mind and heart? I don't know. I mean, in, in Revelation 6.17, when they cried out, who can stand, they're probably asking, who would be able to withstand this? Who can survive this? But when Psalm 1.5 says the wicked will not stand in the judgment, I think that can literally mean they're going to be bowing and kneeling. Every knee will bow. But the answer to the question that's cried out by the wicked on the earth at the return of Christ, who can stand, is found in Revelation chapter 7. And now John sees another vision, and this is what he sees. He sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. These correspond to the four living creatures of chapter 6 and 5. They're called four living creatures in Revelation 5 and 6. Here they are identified as being four angels. And these four creatures are the ones who released the four horsemen, right? But they are also seen now to be holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. The wind in Scripture often represents the, the, the move of, of evil, the move of judgment, if you would. Wind is not a positive thing in Old Testament and New Testament eschatology symbolisms. So they are restraining God's judgments from completely destroying the earth. Right now, listen, right now, there are four angels that are holding back the full wrath of God against the unrighteousness on the earth. So we're living in a world that is definitely, obviously, it's increasingly dark. And we at times cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? And here's the answer. Something has to happen first. Something has to take place. And that which needs to happen is found in verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God. So they are restraining, holding back. Listen, this is the activity not of Satan. It's the activity of God in judgment. Now, of course, God will use the enemy for his purposes. But it, he's holding back. These angels are holding back. They're, they're not allowing the full, in a sense, effect of what God is unleashing against evil on the earth to have its full manifestation until... Something takes place, and that is in verse 3, until we have sealed, he says, the servants of our God, of our God on their foreheads. Those sealed are the doulos. That's the Greek word, the servants, the doulos. Paul uses this word when he calls himself a bond slave. That's the word that is used here. And they're going to be sealed. Now, dispensationalists will tell you there's going to be 100, 144,000 is the term. Is the, it's what is used here. In verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed as 144,000. This is where it gets very controversial. What does that represent? What is that? Is it a literal 144,000? Is it a representative, symbolic number? What is it? Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that the 144,000 are the only ones that are righteously, were righteous enough to be saved. And that was finally fulfilled in 1935. That's when the 144,000 were complete in Jehovah's Witnesses' understanding. And so that anyone else now who believes what they believe will never be on the earth with God. They will only, excuse me, they will never be in heaven with God. They will only be on the earth. They can never be in heaven. They can only be on the earth. Only 144,000 will be in heaven. Dispensationalists believe the 144,000 represent 144,000 Jews who are saved 
out of the tribulation, during the tribulation, who are witnessing to Christ during the tribulation on the earth. Saved Jews. But there's a lot of problems with that literal interpretation of 144,000. And let me just tell you a few of them. First, they take this figure literally because there are literal tribes that are named in this text, verses 5 through 8. But if you take this number literally, then you have to take every other number in Revelation literally as well. And they do that. thousand years, two witnesses, how many eyes, how many spirits there are in these, some of these visions. They take everything literal. But the problem, too, is that these tribes don't correspond with the tribes named in the Old Testament. Dan and Ephraim are named. This is Genesis 35, where you will find. You can read it on your own at some point. Dan and Ephraim are named among the tribes in Genesis 35. They are not named here. Which would mean, then, if Dan and Ephraim are not named here, then nobody's going to get saved out of those tribes during the tribulation, according to dispensational theology. Also, Judah is named first here, and Reuben is named first because he was the oldest son in Genesis 35. Then after Reuben, in this account, two sons of concubines are named, Gad and Asher. And then another son of a concubine, Naphtali, is named. Whereas they were at the very end of the listing of sons, in Genesis 35. They were born from concubines, not from his wives. Not from Jacob's wives. So why did they move in this text? Why was this by John seen, where the concubines are seen? First Judah, interesting, and then Reuben, and then the sons of the Gentiles. And then the rest of the sons with the exclusion of Dan and Ephraim. Interestingly, Dan, the, the tribe of Dan in the northern kingdom of Israel is where I predominantly we would find idolatry in the nation of northern kingdom of Israel. That's where much idolatry took place. And so that is excluded in this picture, and we'll see why in a moment as well. Dan and Ephraim, especially Dan, became notorious for idolatry in the northern kingdom. And in intertestamental Jewish literature, they were associated with the Antichrist. So the order of the tribes in Revelation 7 symbolized the reign of Jesus, first of all, Judah, the incorporation of the outcasts, Gentiles, and the exclusion of idolaters from the covenant community that God shields from his terrible wrath. It's also impossible for this to be literal because the sixth seal has already marked the end of the age and these 144,000 are not able to be sealed after the end of the age. It had to have happened before the end of the age. So it isn't even chronological. So dispensationalists would have to deal with that reality. Are you following me? What does this represent then? 144,000. What is it? Is it a literal 144,000? No. It's symbolic. It represents the true Israel of God. Not a geographical land, not a natural people, but a spiritual people. The people who are God's elect throughout the church advent between the two comings of Christ. Look at Galatians. Let's look at a couple of texts. Look at Galatians 6.16 with me. This is so controversial. This is uh, highly debatable um, because I'll tell you why in a moment. It's, 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 it's been maligned um, by many theologians. Galatians 6.16. Looking back at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new 
creation. So there's a powerful theological statement there. Circumcision is not the issue Paul is writing to the Galatians. As important as that was to the Jews, he goes, that is not the issue, but a new creation is the issue. And then he says this, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon, listen, the Israel of God. Who is he writing to here? A Gentile church. Who is the Israel of God in their minds that he's referring to? It's the true believers in Christ, Jew and Greek, which he will address in Colossians and in other places, Ephesians. The Israel of God is the, is the church. The church is the true Israel of God. He, he teaches this whole theology. We won't look at it in Galatians 3. And then look, turn with me to Romans 9 for a moment. Verses 6 through 8. And I don't know how it could be any more clear than here, but still people struggle with this, even really brilliant theologians, because of the mindset, the lens through which they're reading it. Romans 9, 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, the natural genealogy is not the point here. But through Isaac, he's now quoting Genesis, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So he makes this point in another place in Romans as well, that the true sons of Abraham are those who have now believed in Christ just as Abraham did, believed God and to whom it's been credited as righteousness. So dispensationalists especially are afraid and just put off by what I am saying right now and teaching what this means because of a theology that has been, it's called replacement theology, which is a kind of a poor term for it, that states basically this, that the church has replaced Israel in all of the promises, regarding all of the promises of the Old Testament. Now, on the one hand, that is true in what I'm saying to you, but the problem with that theology is that in some cases in the church history, it's led to anti-Semitism. to persecution of the Jewish people by people who, who held the same eschatology that we're teaching you of all millennialism. Luther was, has a reputation as being an anti-Semite. And other men reformed in the reformers' times as well who held to amillennialism because of their understanding of Israel now being no longer the true Israel, but the church is the Israel, or not just the, but the church which consists of both Jew and Gentile. There's been a, a sense that there's been an anti-Semitic tone to that belief. I actually had lunch one day with a young guy that was coming to the church for a while with his wife, and he caught a whiff of what I was teaching regarding um, this truth. As I was teaching in Matthew, I think it was at the time, he took us out to lunch and he just pointedly asked me, do you believe in replacement theology? And I knew what he was going to get at. And I said, not as you're thinking. But I do in another way, in another sense. And he left the church because of it. It's got a very negative connotation. There's, a, there's an article that I came across this week as I was studying this that I could send to you if you're interested, that really lays out in an excellent way this whole issue of replacement theology. There's a better term. Some like to call it fulfillment theology. Replacement theology is such a negative connotation now. Uh, men are using the term fulfillment theology or supersessionism. The, the term supersessionism comes from two Latin words, super, which is on or upon, and sedere, which means to sit. This carries the idea of one person sitting on another's chair, displacing the latter. 
This label replacement theology does not appear to be well received by many. As I said, some would rather have it be known as fulfillment theology. And then he goes on and he just lays out the whole definition of it and why it's so debated. It's an excellent article. It really is. So what, and, and in this, he, he also says that, that many who hold to what I'm teaching you today, that, that the church has, in a sense, fulfilled everything related to Israel in the Old Testament. would still say that God has something in his mind and heart for the nation of the people of Israel. And the reason that that, that is a common thought in, the, in, in those who hold amillennialism is because what he teaches in, in Romans chapter 11 when he says all Israel will be saved. And he talks about grafting in. We, he says don't be arrogant in Romans 10. Don't be arrogant because you are wild olive branches that have been grafted into the root. So he's saying is that, is that this salvation first belonged to the nation of Israel, but now it has been extended to the Gentiles, which is why we are now in the community of redemption, of the redeemed. So there's a, there's a lot of controversy around this. And I will say to you my thinking, and I don't know deans on this, we haven't really talked it through, my belief is that even in Romans 11, when he says all Israel will be saved, I don't believe he's talking about natural Israel. I think he's talking about the elect. That all of the elect, both in the Jew and the Gentile community, those that are the elect of all nations will be saved. That, that seal will be put upon them. And that's what all Israel means. But I do believe, too, that God has something in his heart for the natural Israel. And I think 1948 proves that, does it not? Them getting their land back? But let me put this addendum on it, and I'm, that's all I'm going to say about it, because i got to move on really quickly. The romanticism surrounding Israel is not biblical in evangelicalism in America where everything around Israel is positive in many evangelicals' minds. Israel can do no wrong. There's almost a romantic attitude towards the nation of Israel that is not a biblical perspective because the church is the, now the apple of God's eye, not the nation of Israel. There are, gonna, there are Jews on the land, in the land of Israel who are part of the church. That is the apple of God's eye, not the nation. The nation of Israel is an ungodly, atheistic, agnostic nation, wicked and unbelieving and disobedient, just like every other nation on the earth. They're no different. God brought them back to a land for some reason that is yet to be fully revealed in my mind in the last days. But nevertheless, we can see that God is not finished with that people in a unique way as opposed to every other nation on the earth. But the church is the Israel of God. Does that make sense to you guys? Revelation 7 is broken into two sections. 1 through 8 describes a vision of the church, I believe, militant on the earth. The, the, assembly, the, the, the record, recording of the 144,000 as 12 tribes is a picture of the Old Testament, especially the book of Numbers, when they were aligned in a certain way, the tribes were aligned in a certain way for battle. They were, they were numbered for battle. The numbering of the tribes was for battle only. And they were set up in the wilderness in a specific way for battle. And so when we see this picture of the 144,000 in Revelation 1 through 8, it is the church militant on the earth. But in verses 9 through the end of the chapter, it's the church in heaven. It's the church triumphant. So the 144,000 represent the church that will be sealed by God during this age as the seals are broken and its judgment is poured out and as the trumpets and bowls, which will further describe the tribulation of the earth, that the earth is undergoing due to its sin. 
12 times 12 times 1,000 represents the fullness of the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the entirety of the redeemed church. And they are arrayed for battle in verses 5 through 8. But they must be sealed, John says, with what? With the seal of the living God on their foreheads. Now look at Revelation 14 because we're going to find this 144,000 again when we get there. And we get another picture of this sealing in Revelation 14, verse 1. And I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So that's what the seal is. It's the name of God. It's the name of the Father and it's the name of the Son written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living elders, the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who have not defiled themselves with women. So there's purity. For they are virgins. Speaking of purity. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as a first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. So it's a picture of the redeemed before the throne, clothed in white, which is a picture of being triumphant and of being pure. The 144,000. So with the writing of God's name on our foreheads, does that have an Old Testament reference to it? Uh, well, when they would write the law on the, on the, they would write the law on their hands. I mean, so, that's the only place you would find anything similar to that. So that's, that's where it also could coincide with scripture where it says, I'll write, I'll write my laws on their hearts. Yes. Is that in Hebrews? It's in Hebrews. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Taken from Jeremiah 31. Okay. So it's, so it's, um, it goes with the same idea as the law and the name of God. He well, you would have to make a stretch to make that work. I oh, mean, it's okay. not exactly the same by any means. Oh, okay. But it, the, the thing of the forehead is, is, a, is a seal upon them of, of God. And I'll talk to you in a moment about why that's important and what it means. Great. Thank you. This corresponds to Revelation 3 when the when Lord spoke to Philadelphia, the church that was the only one that didn't receive a rebuke and who he was... Uh, saying you have done well in your, in your weakness and your suffering. And he says, the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God. So this is not a seal that is visible, obviously. Just as circumcision is more than skin deep, reaching to the heart, so this seal of ownership that marks us as God's own is the possession of being, being possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's the seal of God upon us by the Holy Spirit. It's the name of the Father and the name of the Son sealing us, being sealed by the Spirit of God. Look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee of the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. 430, chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians. And do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then I love this text, 2 Timothy 2.19. 2 Timothy 2.19, if you could turn there quickly. And it says this, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So you see, there are numerous texts in the New Testament that speak about being sealed, about the seal. Now, it's interesting, and I'm not going to have time to really look at this today, 
But this is counterfeited in chapter 13 of Revelation when the enemy does what? Puts the mark on those that are his. Big difference between those two words in the Greek, the word seal and the word mark. The word seal speaks of possession, of ownership, of identity. The mark is like a brand. It has no promises associated with it. It's simply a means of identifying someone belonging to something or someone else. Whereas the seal has a sense of, of an of, of a, of a intimacy to it, of an ownership, of a heart relationship to it. So this, this seal is our identity. It is our security. It is our protection. It is the confirmation of a promised inheritance now as we live in this life in the midst of a fallen world. This should give us great hope and great joy. You and I have been sealed. That seal is upon us by the Spirit of God. The text in Revelation 7.3, do not harm the earth until the doulos of God, the servants of God have been sealed. That's us. And it was meant, it was given, but to John saw this vision in order to encourage the saints who were suffering and going through great trial and going through great tribulation, who are living on a fallen earth. Because all of those four different horsemen that Dean took time to describe, the, the red, white, black, and pale horse representing strife and murder, political, military power that is evil, famine and, and disparity and death and pestilence and disease, all those things we talked about touch, touch us at some point in our lives. But we've been sealed by God in the midst of it, which is a hugely, incredibly beautiful, powerful picture of God's faithfulness to us. This, this text in Revelation 7, I concluded, might be one of the most powerful and beautiful pictures in all of Scripture of the truth of election. We see the seal on the servants of God. The angels hold back the wrath of God until all of the elect have come in and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Only when the fullness of the elect, only when those whom Christ has died for and chosen to be his own have come in, then only will the angels release the wrath of God on the earth. There is something very beautiful about the way Christ the mediator holds back the four winds and desists from opening the seventh seal and sending his full judgment upon the earth until all whom the Father has given to him are saved and have the seal of the Lamb upon them. He holds back everything until all that is signed and sealed in the everlasting covenant of grace has been delivered in full. In full. Joel Beek wrote that. So we now see in the end of this chapter, the church triumphant, and it says, and we're going to have to look at this quickly, and we don't need to read all of it and break it all down, but it's basically that there is a multitude before the throne of God that no man can number. In Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, all the languages on the earth, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. What John is describing is what he is seeing in this vision is what was promised to Abraham in the covenant of grace in Genesis chapter 12. Descendants as many as the grains of sand and as many of, as the stars in the sky, too numerous to count. This is what John is seeing, the fulfillment of, of the promise given to Abraham. This is the church in glory, a multitude from every nation and tribe and language standing before the throne, worshiping, clothed in white, representing purity and triumph with palm branches in their hand. And this is a picture of the Feast of Booths where they celebrated the completion of the exodus and the ingathering of the harvest. That's what they celebrated during the Feast of Booths. And they would wave palm branches during the Feast of Booths. And this is what John sees is a picture of the multitude of the peoples of the earth redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, worshiping God as they did in the old during the Feast of Booths, representing the completion of the exodus and the fulfillment, the fullness of the ingathering of the harvest of the elect of the earth. And they cried with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God 
See, this is a powerful, powerful perspective of of the grace, sovereign grace of God. Salvation is of God and of God alone. We've been called according to his purpose, foreknown by God before the foundation of the earth, Paul writes. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Christ might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. The sovereign grace of God at work in election. God calling the elect to himself. Revelation 7 is a picture of the elect of God being brought before the throne of God, the redeemed of God, militant upon the earth and triumphant in heaven. And this is what John sees in this vision. The elect through the ages before the throne of God, giving glory to the Father and to the Lamb for such a great salvation that is his and his alone. It has nothing to do with us except that it was for us. But it's of God and God alone. And so just to conclude, we have to be moved by this picture and the the gospel imperative that shapes this picture that John sees And I just ask myself, why has judgment not yet come? And why are these angels that John sees still even right now as we sit here today, why are they still restraining these four winds of judgment and of wrath from coming across the face of the earth in their fullness? And the reason this answer is very simple, so that the full number of God's elect might come in. God will withhold them until all that Christ has redeemed come in. And so we exist in this present time for the purpose of seeing the multitudes whom yet need to come into this harvest who will worship God as this picture of verses 8 through 17 depict in Revelation 7, who will stand before the throne, all of us together one day, and cry out, salvation belongs to our God and God alone. And then we will live eternally together on a new earth, on the new earth and the new creation. So this is a powerful, beautiful picture. If anybody wants this article that I read on uh, replacement theology to help you gain some understanding, maybe drop me a text, drop me an email, and I will gladly email it to you. It's really worth reading. It's really powerful because when you start talking to other people about maybe what you believe in eschatologically, when you start describing your amillennial, if you hold to that perspective, it's going to raise people's hair on the back of their necks. Um, And always it has to do with Israel. And I've got some dear, dear friends that I've had to have conversations with and we see this so differently. And this is a sticking point because they immediately assume that I'm throwing Israel out the window and that uh, I'm I'm demeaning the nation of Israel and I'm against Israel somehow or whatever. And that's that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that the church is the true Israel of God. And I believe the New Testament fully supports it. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Bless our gathering today. In Jesus' name, amen.